Alright everybody, I am here today with James Huber. James is an attorney that specializes in the payments industry. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing great, doing great. So, uh, Patty and I are going to talk to James today about the traps to avoid when you're trying to scale up an ISO with, you know, sub agents and referral partners and kind of all these different things that, you know, we all deal with as we're trying to grow our business. Um, but before we get into that, James, I would definitely love to hear your story. I'm always interested to hear everybody's story in the industry. How did you get into this industry? How did you end up as an attorney specializing in the payment space? You're kind of a rare breed. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're you're one of a very small cadre yes. of payments attorneys. <laughs> it's always cool to see how that yeah. happens. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the reasons I got into this space is that we quickly realized that there were no attorneys in the space. But before that, I started uh, out my career doing criminal defense, white collar and sure. high profile appeals. Uh -huh. And at the time at my firm, my partner, now partner, then he was my boss. He had one client. This was an ISO, a leasing ISO, the true smash and grab model. They were the best of the worst. Right. Really, you know, a dream <laughs> client for us. But right. Um, not for the merchants. There was not for the merchants at all. Um, and you know, there was a great, great deal of crossover there with, uh, criminal defense because, you know, I haven't named any names or anything, but they were doing crime. So, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I love that direct uh, response there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the truth. So uh, no, yeah. I, I started out selling for one of those companies. So I understand. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I, uh, started dipping my toe in over there because, you know, we kept getting busier and busier from the work that they were creating. You know, they started as a, you know, one man shop, eight person shop, and they ended up having, you know, six offices nationwide, you know, over 400 employees, agents, things like that. So what I started doing is I started jumping in on these cases and we would just run circles around these attorneys. And, you know, these are my clients, you know, they had a dedicated whiteout room for, you know, adjusting contracts and things like that. And they were in they're long gone and, you know, I haven't said any names, so I think it's okay to share this information, but they're, they're, um, you know, we would still you know, knock the socks off of these other attorneys that would come at us because they didn't understand the industry. Right. And yeah. that was a lot of fun for me to, you know, keep winning even when, you know, the odds are against you. So uh, then I went to a conference. I went to ETA, and I think that we I, – I got some, like, you know, the worst banner you could ever see. We put up a booth, and <laughs> – uh, met a whole bunch of people and they kept saying the same three names of, Oh, do you know this attorney? And, you know, I didn't know any of them at the time. Um, the, but, the, the you know, three payment out, attorneys at the time. Right. right. Yeah. There <laughs> <Yeah>. were three. <laughs> right. And only, you know, two of them are still around. You know, right. maybe now there's, there might be know, four or five. Or right. <laughs> right. 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 So, you know, once we realized there was this huge opportunity and, you know, a really underserved industry, um, you know, we jumped right in and we've we've really enjoyed it. You know, the big the most enjoyment that we find is, you know, finding an agent who's growing his business and watching him build an organization, build a lifestyle, build a career, then hire all of his best friends and families and overpay them. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> that, that does seem to be the path. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's a perfect segue then, James, because my next question, uh, I want to talk about the individual agents. So, you know, one of the things that's so exciting about our industry and so unique is that many of the top, you know, founders, CEO, whatever of these big companies and big ISOs, they started out, you know, feet on the street out there, you know, walking into to businesses and selling them. And now they're, you know, wanting to grow the business. And so we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs in the industry. So can you talk about some of the traps that you've maybe seen these individual agents fall into where, you know, they're, they're small, they don't even, maybe they're not even thinking about the next step and growing, but what are some of these traps they're falling into and how can they protect themselves and their portfolios while they're small and, and, you know, just getting to that step where they're ready to scale up? Absolutely. You know, the first place to start is your ISO agreement and every 
you know, well, not every, but most agents are going, you know, look, I didn't even read that thing. Of course. Everything's been going <laughs> fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's been going fine. I, you know, I really know so-and-so over there. He's my buddy. He comes over for Christmas dinner. Right. He would never, he would you never know, screw uh, me out of money. Nah. He would, he would never do anything <laughs> like that. But what happens when he, his boss decides to sell his company and now. Right. You know, you've got have something has changed. You know, look at you know one of the big ones. First data about three years ago, they start hitting everybody with minimum shortfalls that hadn't been enforced in three years. Right. Mm -hmm. And this was a power play to get people into Card Connect agreements. They're going, oh, you know, hey, you haven't hit your minimums for the last four years. You owe us four hundred thousand dollars, but we'll waive that if you just sign this new Card Connect mm -hmm. agreement that also has minimums and worse pricing than you had before. So, right. you know, your choice. Right. <clears throat> right. Um, but you, you've got to look at these things. And my advice to anybody sitting there is, if you don't love your agreement, it's not you know. I'm not even talking about pricing. I'm talking about your, you know, ability to sell your portfolio. What right. happens if you violate uh, non-solicit or anything like that? Is go renegotiate that thing or go diversify? Right, right. Mm -hmm. You, you really, you have to make sure you love your agreement. And I think too, it should be mentioned, right? That I mean, you have to have some leverage as well. I mean, we're talking to the agent that is actually selling merchants, and processors want your business, right? Sure. But even if you, you know, you know, let's say you've got your book. I mean, a lot of people are scared to, you know, ruffle any feathers because they're going, True. hey, if I make these guys angry, they're just going to cut me off. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's going to happen eventually if you don't do something about it now. You know, even if yeah. you're only submitting, you know, one, two, three deals a year, you probably want to start putting those somewhere else and diversifying because, the name of the game now is sell. It's getting way too easy. You know, I get You're I get right. contacted multiple times saying, you know, hey, do you know anybody who's looking to sell a book? Right. So mm -hmm. it's gonna happen. And investors are happens, investors are realizing you know, that the, the ROI in our industry is like ridiculous. Right. Right. Yeah, and the agent gets left behind when that happens. It, you know, it doesn't matter who you know or anything. But if your agreement is in there. Um, you know, at least you've got a shot. Then you come down to, you know, what are you going to do about it? Can you, you know, afford to pay someone like me? But, you know, the chances are that you actually probably can because there's, you know, there's so much on, on the line here, mm -hmm. including yeah, the ISO and the purchaser's reputation who doesn't want somebody getting on a podcast and talking about how they've mistreated their agent. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's like, you know, uh, it really reminds me of one of like the horror stories I was thinking of. <clears throat> one of the individual agents, you know, they had this agreement they thought was really good. Everything about it was great except for one little clause that said that if the ISO ever sold, that they would get a predetermined 10x um, buyout. So this agent built up like a 10,000 a month residual. They thought it was great. They were getting paid and all that. And then one day they just got an email. Or they, they actually got, they called me because they got an ACH to their bank account for like, I think it was like $80,000 or something like that. And they mm. were like excited at first. Right, sure. Until they got the email that said, yeah, you got the 80000 and we're not going to pay the 8000 anymore. Of course, the ISO probably sold for a 45X. <laughs> right. So, you know, but yeah. So I, I'm, I think it sounds like what you're saying is that kind of stuff is kind of inevitable that these, these sales are going to happen. These exit strategies are going to happen. You want to make sure you're not at the mercy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to, you know, because I, I get people all the time saying, oh, I don't want to do anything because I'm scared of ruffling your feathers. That's the best thing you can do. Let's talk about the mm -hmm. example that you just gave. Okay, they sold their book. You know, they're going to buy out their agent, you know, in the disclosures of saying, hey, don't worry about my agent. That agent who you just talked about, he's not going to be too happy with that 80K buyout, and he's probably going to go grab his house accounts and put them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's causing issues for everybody. For and the buyer as well. Got, you know, go ahead. No, you're saying it's also going to cause issues for the buyer because now they bought a portfolio where a bunch of these accounts, all of that account, not just the agent's portion, now a lot of those accounts, they're going to get flipped back somewhere else. And, and really they have no leverage because they, they took everything from the agent. So what are they going to do? I mean, they can try to file a cease and desist, but good luck, right? 
Right. It's going to be a problem for everybody except for someone like myself. Right. <laughs> who's going to get involved in some level. Right. 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 Sure. Okay. So, so this, is, this is such good information. This is really good. So we've, we're talking about the individual agent. Let's shift it a little bit now and let's talk about, okay, the individual agent now is realizing, okay, I'm really good at this. I'm building up residual. I've looked at my agent agreement. I've got some things taken care of with my ISO. Now I want to hire some sub agents, right? And so there's a lot of people listening who own a small ISO. They've got, you know, five sub agents. Three of them are their friends from high school and the other two are somebody they just met. And, you know, what are the what are the traps they are falling into as far as the way they're managing their kind of sub agent relationships? And what should they be considering as they're starting to scale up the ISO a little bit more? Yeah, I like that topic a lot. It's something that my firm has run into quite a bit. And that issue is misclassification. So, you Mm -hmm. know, you've got an outside agent. Typically in this industry, they are 1099. Right contractors right but there's been some pretty drastic changes in the law and plaintiffs attorneys are starting to get wise to this so let's say you've got an agent who's out on the street you know he's got 25 merchants he's sent to you he realizes oh hey you know i want a ferrari too i'm gonna go do this myself mm-hmm. he steals half of his agent's and you're saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue you for stealing my agents. You have to give them back. You can't get them back because they're all his high school friends or whatever. Right. And you start going after that guy, and he comes back and says, oh, you know what? You've misclassified me. I was actually your employee. Uh-huh. Even though I never came to your office, right. I right. only submitted deals to you from the outside. I set my own hours. I did all of this. Where it comes into an issue is your subagent agreement. If you have exclusivity in there, Mm -hmm. that's going to lean towards an employee. And the problem in this industry particularly is your subagents will have to agree to essentially all of the terms of your ISO agreement. Most ISO agreements will say that if you have a subagent, they've got to basically agree to all this. And the level of control that comes down – you know, they've got to follow the card brand rules. They have to, you know, market a certain way. There's things they can say, they can't say. Mm-hmm. And the analysis on a 1099 versus W-2 all comes down to control. And we have seen this way too many times where basically your sub-agents can just steal all of this. And if they know if you come after them, they're going to go hire an employment attorney who will take the case for free and also in exchange for your case. a percentage and, of the uh, huge, uh, enormous payoff they're going to receive in the end. Right. Yeah. 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 We had one recently where the guy we got we have the guy on camera breaking into the office on the weekend, basically drilling through a filing cabinet to steal all of his merchant files. Whoa. And <laughs> we've got we've got him, but on the other side. He's got misclassification, payroll violations, and all these penalties stack up. And then there's attorney's fees on those. Right. Mm-hmm, and sure. how it works in litigation, it's not, you know, you owe me $100,000 and I owe you, you know, or, you know, each side owes each other $100,000. It's not, doesn't wash out. It's both sides have to write a check. So oh, good yeah. luck going after the agent. He doesn't have any money. Right. Like he can go after you. So right. That, so, you, but you write your you check know, for a hundred thousand, and, and then you're waiting on the agent to write you the check for a hundred thousand that has no money. Exactly, and mm-hmm. it's brutal because you've also paid for your attorney the whole way. And let's say you don't even have a claim against the guy, just winning, uh, defending an employment violation. You don't get any money from them. You just win. So. It actually right. ends up cheaper to settle. So your sub-agents can basically steal from you, and they've got this great defense of saying there's nothing you can do. But hope is not lost here. If your agreement is really tight and mm-hmm. how you handle them, you should be able to fend these things off. So or go ahead, Patty. No, I was just yeah, because that that was that brought up a point for me in terms of the agreements. Uh, right. You know that that that's a really interesting point, James. I mean, can you can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I. I mean, I can I can kind of 
think of it in terms of grand schemes, but I'd like to kind of drill down a little bit and understand. Like what, like what, like what changes should they be making to their right, agreements? Exactly. And, and in broad strokes, obviously can't give us too much specifics, but in, in broad, broad strokes, strokes yeah, yeah. What should they be doing to protect themselves? Yeah. What? You, well, th- this is how we did this. Is we? I've, this came up too many times. So we started making friends with plaintiffs' attorneys and. Well, not really, kind of frenemies, but we went to a plaintiff's attorney um, that we had worked with years ago, and we had seen that he had done some of these cases, not in the payment space. Right. And so we talked to him, and we're going, what's everything you need to see where if you saw this agreement, you'd say, hey, you know what, not worth your time. Right. So it's a whole layer of sections that basically talks about the kind of control that you don't have over this person. Oh, uh, okay. Sure. And it's really laying out. You know, most agreements will say, hey, you're an independent contractor. You do your own payroll. You do your own this. You do your own that. And it's one section in your agreement. Mm-hmm. But we've got it laid out that specifically details how the relationship works because – I can walk into an attorney's office and explain, hey, I'm this agent. I go out on the street. They make me say certain things. I have to carry their business cards. And the plaintiff's attorney starts drooling. His secretary brings in a mop. They write a demand letter. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. a big check gets written. But if they, he brings in, he goes, here's my agreement. And it lays out how it actually works mm-hmm. in plain English. Right. You know, hey, you just the the agent just kind of sends me warm leads. Um, right. You know, they don't do any of the negotiation on pricing. Um, you know, they're 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 setting their own leads, or even if they are getting their own leads, you lay it out specifically. You basically spell out how the relationship works. And what we did is we kind of weaved in all of the elements of. W-2 versus 1099 mm-hmm. and address them in kind in the agreement. Specifically so like point of, by point in the agreement, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, by yeah. point. And you, you put right. it under, you know, um, contractor or referral partner or whatever mm-hmm. obligations. Yes, sure. And you put certain things in there and you kind of weave it in so it's not – it doesn't look like you're trying too hard. It just looks like you're really spelling out what they do and don't Right, do. right, right. You know, one of the other one of the other really interesting things I have to point out here. I mean, <clears throat> it sounds like there's enough kind of ambiguity here with the with kind of and especially now I know California passing specific laws and things. So there might be enough ambiguity. I mean, do you think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a trend in the industry towards W two? Like, are the ISOs kind of finally being like, you know what? Who knows? Like, it looks like no matter what we do, there's this chance that it seems like maybe they're going to be W-2 anyway. Why don't we just go ahead and incur the expense now of making them W-2 so we can justify the control, get the proper insurance to cover our liability, et cetera? Like, is that is that a shift that you're kind of seeing with clients or, or not? Yes, and that's what we're advising people. You know, yeah, there's sure. no clean way out of it because really – if you're going to make them an agent, you can't control them. And if you don't want them stealing trade secrets, stealing merchants, things mm-hmm. like that, it gets a lot harder. But if you make them an employee, you know, you can't, you can't be an employee and be brokering deals somewhere else. Right. You can't be an employee and take your whole customer list with you. Right. It's very, it's very clear who owns them. that, who owns those merchant relationships. So, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And, and I've done, we've, we've had some really good conversations on the podcast with a lot of the larger ISOs starting up that are going that mm-hmm. that direction or, or, you know, or even making kind of like, you know, two options where it's like the W-2. And then it's like, OK, if you're not going to be full time and you want to sell for other people, you can become a referral partner. And that's the 1099 right. relationship. And it's very clear this is a referral relationship, you know. So it sounds like you're saying that's that's probably the path the industry is, is kind of heading towards it sounds like as we kind of see what happens with the with the laws is, is that what you're saying it is but you know it's not that much better on the other side either it's, you know once you call them an employee you've got to jump through all the hoops <laughs> mm-hmm. of having an employee right, right. Now you have the hr nonsense California. yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah hr issues you know we're in california you know add an extra you know 30 40 percent to what you pay them for payroll taxes right and all of that sure so, Right. The agent model still is the way to go. It's just got to be tweaked just so. And there's things you can do on that you can have them do on their operation. Talk to them why they want to do those things. You know, they form their own corporation. They have their own staff so that it is more of a 
uh, horizontal business sure. relationship. Right. It's a business to business relationship. Sure. So, okay. So, exactly. I, so I, I, this is such good information. I feel like we could stop on any of these points for like an hour, but I'm, right. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it moving because I really want to get to a few other things. So I want to talk about portfolio value. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, all of us are trying to do the same thing, whether it's an ISO or an agent, we're trying to build portfolio value. Um, and so I'm wondering, James, can you share some, some of the like traps that you see the ISOs fall into that really hurt that portfolio value? Maybe some things they could have avoided where they go to make the sale from the portfolio they want to get acquired. And all of a sudden it's like, oh man, we didn't realize that we had this issue. What are some of those things that you've seen? Well, we, we talked a lot about sub-agents, so I'll just touch and go on that. But that's your biggest threat, is your sub-agents taking the business sure. um, after you sell or, you know, creating any sorts of issue. But, you know, again, that's the agreement and you know, treating them right leading sure. up to the sale. Right. Um, the other thing, you know, I don't know about if this is a pitfall, but I don't see it done that much is utilizing value adds. A lot of ISOs will be selling something else to the merchant. I mean, you sure, certainly sure. should be. Right. Um, but bundling that into your residual, if, if you know, you'd be surprised how lenient the processors are on creating a, a line item or whatever on the processing agreement. And if you're a sub ISO through your ISO, you can you know work it out so that they they can include that too, but that'll increase your portfolio. You know, if you're selling SEO, you know, even your equipment, you know, can be billed directly to the uh, merchant and increase your value. You know, you start doing that six months beforehand. That's a great way to do it. On the same note, if you are doing that and you're billing it under a separate agreement, that can be a humongous liability. You know, with a lot of agents will be ACHing, merchants direct for certain services and i have been hard pressed to find people with the correct language you know this is recurring billing every single month right there are a lot of states that have really specific requirements disclosures Mm. opt-outs on recurring billing right and that though you know the biggest pitfall overall is just really not being aware of your compliance because you can go sell your portfolio and three years later get a notice of oh hey by the way we got sued about a year and a half ago we incurred three hundred thousand dollars in attorney's fees and we had to pay them you know 20 grand so you owe us three hundred twenty thousand dollars under your indemnity clause Right. So right. these are things, you know, that could have been incurred year, you know, two years before you sold just because you, you know, somebody called somebody on the do not call list or any number of violations. So we really advise people to get kind of a compliance analysis, have a look under the hood and make sure what's going on is compliant, not going to incur much liability because regulators plaintiffs, attorneys, purchase, everybody, you know, remedial measures matter. And that so becomes particularly something going on. Go ahead. No, I was just going to suggest, and that becomes particularly uh, burdensome when you're operating across a lot of different states. I mean, say California versus Nevada, right? Sure, sure, for yeah. certain things. But, you know, you'd be, su- you'd be surprised. There, there is a lot of continuity. What I learned a few years ago um, that all of the state attorney generals get on a call monthly, right? And they just they discuss a number of things. They have a specific monthly call for payment processors. <laughs> I and didn't realize that they all talk. Uh-huh. Sorry, no, I just didn't realize they did that. That's really yeah. I mean, I knew they did it, but I didn't know they had one specific to payment processing. Yeah, yes. that's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I asked them to invite me on that call. They said no. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did find out that it existed. So well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So, 
you know, here, here's what I like to do. So as kind of our like last question here, I really want to jump into one other group we really haven't talked about that much. I mean, we, we certainly touched on some relevant topics, but what about the super ISO, you know, the really the large company, they've got a thousand agents, they've got, you know, uh, you know, they have a hundred thousand merchants already and, you know, 50,000 merchants, whatever. I mean, the bigger company. So, you know, obviously they're trying to structure better relationships with their sub agents and referral partners and things like that. What are some things that you've seen maybe some of these bigger companies do that maybe shocked you that they were still doing it that way or any kind of tips that you would give to the executive that's on here right now, the VP of sales for this huge processing company? What are some things you've seen the big shops doing that they could maybe do better at at scale? Yeah, I mean, the one thing we touched on is the 1099 versus W-2. Sure, I, right. I That's don't huge. see a lot of people handling that very, you know, perfectly. The other uh, item that's come up is data protection. Your sub-agents are collecting a lot of data. Right. And most of them, do, you know, they'll have a website maybe just for a little bit of legitimacy, but they won't even have a privacy policy on it. And, you know, about four, four or five years ago, and still currently, data, you know, data hacks were all the rage. Still are, That's sure. all everyone's talking about. But right. it, it still, still, yeah, still, but it hasn't made it into the ISO or the agent. You know, you look at an agent, mm -hmm. the information that they're collecting and that they have access to is... Is, is a lot and yeah. you know there's a lot of liability there i don't see i don't see really any agents or isos thinking about that with their agents you know they'll mm. put it in the agreement maybe but I, I don't see it even in the agreement a lot you could they talk yeah. about cardholder data but you know they're going oh we don't touch any of that but the merchant data merchant data gather. sure mm -hmm. right well i think too hopefully hopefully the trend in the industry that will kind of you know, make a dent there is going to be going to the online app kind of app, you know, world where it's like, hey, if we want to do a merchant app, we're going to go online. And so you're hopefully the agents entering this on a tablet into a secure, you know, web form and not actually holding a piece of paper that has a social security number, or a mm -hmm. bank account routing number, you know. So, yeah, it's a good point. But it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. the per I guess the thing that surprises me about what you just said is it's shocking to me the percentage of new merchant agreements that are submitted via paper still, yes. even though it's been how many years since, like, hello, DocuSign has been around, like, at the very least, you can't build your own online app. I mean, use DocuSign, like, you know, right? So, I mean, it kind of sounds like hopefully that trend, right, is going to is gonna solve that to an extent, right? Yeah, you would, you would think, but it is surprising, and... I know you'd think that, that, you know, the old school paper people would get fizzled out, but I guess yeah. those old school paper people had kids and they, and they became, them yes, the <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's true. Uh, that's good. Well, I'll tell you what, James, this has been just so informative. I really have enjoyed it. So much good information. There were so many other things. I was like, oh, I want to dive in there, but I'm like, wow, that's just really, really good. So I know a lot of our listeners, even individual agents, you know, to me, the big question is not can they afford to have an attorney? It's can you afford not, not to? Not to, yes. Um, and, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I've been driving my car for several years with no insurance, and I ha haven't gotten a wreck. I think I'm fine. Oh, gee. Uh -huh. Well, you're, you're going to rear in somebody, <laughs> and they're going to, you know, have a neck injury, so good luck with that. So, right. um, you know, I guess the question would be here, James, where would you send people that want to learn more about your law practice and want to reach out to your firm? They can email me at jhuber, J-H-U-B as in boy, E-R, at attorneygl.com. That's jhuber at attorneygl.com. And my website is Global Legal Law Firm, www.globallegallawfirm.com, or they can call our main line at 888-846-8901. I would encourage people just to email me, me uh, myself and my partner, Chris, uh, you know, we love talking to agents. We love talking to ISOs. We live and breathe in this industry. Um, and then we have a number of associates here too that are well versed on particular issues too. So that's um, really great because we really enjoy it. And uh, you know, we built our firm on relationships. And you, you know, we talk about price for attorneys. We have kept our prices low 
just for that reason so that sure. you can't pick up the phone, call your attorney, and not worry about getting a humongous bill. That's really important. And it's like it I, yeah. I, 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 I can't help but think, uh, James, you've probably doubled the number of payment processing attorneys just in your in this industry just from your firm in the last several years. Yeah, if you years. have associates, it's, <laughs> it's like, like, you know, it's yeah. – <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, hey, <laughs> right. thanks, thanks so much for taking time today out of your schedule. I really appreciate it. I know the insights you shared were very valuable to the industry, and uh, I know a lot of people will be reaching out to you now. So I just appreciate that, and hope you have an awesome day, man. Yeah, really educational. Thanks, James. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. Okay, so James, today I want to report on what's happening in Europe with regards to online payment security and what that could mean here for sure. those of us here in the U.S. Uh, strict new customer authentication requirements went into uh, effect in September for online merchants doing business in Europe. Okay. But uh, interestingly, not everyone was ready. Of course. Gee, surprise. Right. So the regulators have had a, you know, um, in different countries are allowing more time to get ready. Sure. Right. But, you know, the thing that impo- what's important here is the new rules aim to thwart online payment frauds, which have been skyrocketing since EMV took hold. Okay, sure, because um, all the fraudsters now, instead they can't right. do the in-store. They're trying to figure out how to crack the online exactly. world. Okay. And here was an interesting stat I got from MasterCard. Fraud rates for online payment, the fraud uh, you know, rates for online payments right. in Europe yep. now is 10 times greater than for the card present environment. Wow. Now, of course, you got to figure with EMV, there's probably, yeah. you know, like 1%, but right. if that, but right. still 10 times is, is a lot. That's a lot. And uh, so the new security edict uh, has its roots in the Payment Services direct- Directive, uh, which is known by the acronym PSD2. That was issued by the European Commission back in 2015. Right. It regulates payment services companies throughout the European Union. And a key part of those requirements are procedures for authenticating consumer online payments, known as SCA, for Strong Customer Authentication. Okay. Now, under the directive, online merchants have to implement authentication procedures that involve at least two of three elements. (coughs) Excuse me. Mm -hmm. These are something the customer knows, like a password or a PIN. Okay. Something they have, their phone or a hardware token. And something the customer is, such as uh, fingerprint or facial recognition or retinal. Wow. Right? Really? Yes. That's Jeez. pretty intense. I mean, you when know? you were, I was with you on the password part. Right? But it doesn't have to be all three. It has to be two of these three. Still, though. But still, right? So wow. That's, that's pretty, pretty strict. intense stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, it reminded me, I, you know, when I fly, I have this, I'm part of this clear program. Yeah, me too. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love it because I can get to the yep. front of the line and not right. have to worry. But it's like, I don't even do the retinal for them. You can do a Right, you can do a retinal or, or you can finger. do the fingerprint. I do it's the It's like, you can have my finger, thank you. But I mean, not the idea the of like sticking my eye in something, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine doing that every time you have to... You know, do an online. So we gotta. I want to. I want to say these again because okay. Sure. So and and obviously just just to clarify for those that you know were vaguely listening at the beginning, this is in Europe. This is in Europe. But the thing but, to ima- to remember is what happens in Europe. Right. Eventually, eventually comes over the security, to the side. especially that kind especially of thing. Especially with security. Yeah. Because uh, the regulation hasn't made it. But, right, and it'll be time. But uh, but I think right. we need to be aware of this. Yeah. So 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 uh, so authenticating two of these three. authenticating online purchasers. Yes. Right. Two of these three things. Something the customer knows, password or PIN. Mm-hmm. Something they have, their phone or a hardware token. Mm-hmm. Something they are, a fingerprint, facial recognition, retinal scan. And I can't, you know, obviously the fingerprint and face recognition is not a feasible thing for a normal e-commerce merchant. No, you'd time, have to be on a mobile. Right? I mean, right? right, right. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so All you right. could do that if you had. A, you could do you like fingerprint a... recognition on your iPhone. On or your iPhone. Okay, I got okay. it. But okay, so assuming though that we don't have that, it's a it's a web store, right? You know, right. So that means that they would have to enter their password and PIN. Which, by the way, I'll point out here, in the U.S., there are. I mean, I just bought new uh, jeans 
online a few uh, weeks ago. Right. And um, I checked out as a guest. Yes, I do what I don't all the time. So I don't. I didn't enter my password or pen or anything. I know. I, so I didn't even do that. Right. But in this in this scenario, the 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 person would have to log in in order to buy something. Number yes, one. Number one. Then number two, they would have to have something, phone or a hardware token. That is so interesting. So that you're saying, I wonder if that would be like a two part authentication. Like we're we're gonna text you. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, right. Is that what it right, is? Right. That's we're what gonna it would text be. you a number, and then in the shopping cart, you have to enter that number before you can check out. Yes. Like, think about it. That's like, you That's know, when intense. you go on your online banking, right? Right. Every once in a while, my online banking, it's like, let's make sure this is sure who you say but you are. But not every time. No. <laughs> but every time, you'd have to do that. You'd have to have your phone if you're, you know, right. on your PC. You'd have to have your phone for, for yeah. a text message. And see, I think that, that almost and lends itself to a whole new kind of set of software and technology there because exactly. it's like, you know, it's probably it's probably not going to be that. I would say it wouldn't roll out until it was something like, almost like you pull a QR code up on your phone screen mm -hmm. and hold it up to the camera on the computer. On the computer right. You know, I would imagine, I'm imagining something a little bit more convenient. Yeah, and, um, and, and that's maybe, one of the know. problems that they're running into in Europe, obviously, is getting the so. software solutions, not only right. creating them, but then getting them certified. Well, getting them certified, and then actually developers have to put these things on the, you know, on and, the websites. And, and one thing I will say about kind of the European market and things that, you know, why I'm a very proud American here. Um, for all of our European listeners, I love you, but um, I'm a very proud American because doing things like that and implementing these things quickly, one of the m number one things it does is that who has the resources to implement that? Big companies or small companies? Right. Big companies. Of course. There is not a small, there is no small e-commerce provider in Europe that was able to pull that off inside of a year. No, and then what's really <clears> interesting is I, I, what I thought was really interesting is, let me see if I have the statistic here someplace. I think it was something like 80%. I think it was up a little bit. I saw Did you saw it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, 75% didn't even, of merchants in Europe didn't even know the new rules existed. <laughs> there is regulation at its finest. <laughs> right? And something uh, like 85%. Right. No way they were going to be ready by September 14th when this, when this was coming when out. When this was coming out. So, yeah, yeah. So, now there are some exceptions. I mean, if you're um, low value payments. Right. 30, about $30 or less. Recurring payments. And transactions involving consumers who have whitelisted those merchants. So let's say... Oh, so I could choose and say, this is one of my trusted merchants. Right. So now I can just go there and buy again and again with the same payment with method. With the same payment method. That, okay. Well, okay. Now that's interesting. So like, you know, that's, for Amazon or something like that's that, That's a right? big deal. That's so basically, deal. basically what you're saying is... So now I'm starting to understand this a little bit better. So what you're basically talking about here is that the payment gateway right. is going to have something in place through their API mm -hmm. that says that when a new customer for the first time purchases, right. we're going to send them a two-part authentication and we're going to prompt them to whitelist us with their payment right, method. Right, that's the best way to do that. Right, so then sure. moving forward, you don't have to do this again. Exactly. Okay, exactly. well, that's... So that gives okay. you that... All right, this is starting to sound realistic. Okay, so, yeah, it is. But, you know, like I said, a lot of these guys just aren't aware of it. Right. And I think that's, you know... that That's where I get to the point of what does this mean for online merchants here in the U.S.? Sure. You know, and their server, and you know, I think there's a plenty of um, you know, t to consider here. You know, European businesses are often ahead of the curve when it comes to tackling payment security issues. Sure. Right. Okay. Yep. You know, banks and businesses there were EMV compliant long before. Agreed. Yes. It even broached. Right. The U.S. market. Right. 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 Um, and as a result, a lot of the fraudsters who had been preying on the European markets turn to sites in the U.S. market. Right. Well, and that's the thing is it's easier if you're just online. Right. Find the, find, that's the interesting thing is like it's almost a countrywide thing like find yeah. the weakest you know, Find link. the weakest link. Yeah. Sure. 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 And then you know, we know how here in the U.S. when EMV took hold for card present transactions, a lot of the fraud went to went the to online. online. It's right. just the way it goes. Sure. I mean, it's always looking for that weakest link. Hmm. So I think, you know, SCA, the Secure Customer Authentication, is going to be a step that we're going to be facing here in the U.S., not today, right, not right. next week, right, not right. even next year. Yeah, maybe in three years. But maybe years, in three or four yeah. or five years, sure. I think it's something that we really need to be aware of because, you know, once once those 75% of merchants in Europe that weren't even aware of this become aware <laughs> and start implementing sure. these, sure. that that. That fraud traffic's just going right. to travel across the it kinda, Atlantic. It kind of seems like the way it works in the U.S. market is that usually, like, the card brands, like Visa and MasterCard, will put out a bulletin of, like, an advisory. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. you know, we think you should start doing this. You should start looking at this. Right. Then you should start doing this by this date. Then the if the law ever, I mean, there is no law, correct me if no. I'm wrong, there is no regulation or law in the U.S. about EMV. No. Is that and right? Never has been. Right. It's just a visa just, rule. But there are right. like rules on, in some states where they have some things that sort you of- You have to be compliant kind yes, of thing. Okay. Exactly. To protect customer data. That exactly. Kind of okay, I got Especially it. Especially for protecting the customer yeah. data stuff. Okay, interesting. So this was an interesting quote I got from Ron Van Weasel, who is an analyst with Ate Group. He said, uh, you know, PSD2 changes the rules of the game for the global payment industry. Businesses should be sprinting to get their houses in order. Yeah. I think sprinting for the U.S. might be a slight exaggeration, but you certainly- you know, well, need it's to more be aware to me. I feel this. like in the U.S. market, it's more of an interesting startup opportunity. And you know, the other thing right. is, that's interesting is too. So many of these gateways are. You look at Stripe. I mean, Stripe is right. in Europe, right? You know, so I'm sure that they have some. I'd be. They, I'd actually be really interested to look at see like what do they do because I feel like the the U.S. payment gateways and uh, you know they need to be looking at the companies that are operating in Europe. Mm-hmm. What did they do technologically to deal with this? Right, and how can that? Really and how can they migrate that exactly to their marketplace? Yeah, you know. And, you know, like we said, it's not it's not going to happen anytime soon. But, you know, I think Van Weasel's advice is, you know, is well taken, like you said. And like you said, they should be at least paying attention to what Stripe is doing. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. Take a look at it and start start preparing because this is not a this is not a one month uh, technology project. No, this is a one year to two year. This is more like a three to four. This is a big deal. Realistic, you know, for a big company, for a big company. Yeah, this yes. is a big deal. It's a big deal. You know, but the point is, is that modern payment systems are built on and sustained by trust. Right. And it's clear from the evolving rule sets that a single method of knowledge-based identity, identity verification isn't going to cut it over the long haul. Right. You know, that's why additional methods like biometh- biometrics are, you know, right. they're not pie in the sky anymore. They no, really are no, viable um, alternatives. Yeah. And yeah. So that's my take. Wow. Very interesting, Patty. Good stuff. Thanks. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So, Patty, on uh, on this segment here, <clears throat> I, I you know, really enjoyed the interview there with uh, with James, uh, the you know attorney. Um, mm-hmm. Very interesting stuff. And I've been wanting to talk for a while. I think this is really the right episode where I want to talk for a while about leveraging your portfolio for growth. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, we recently put out, of course, our buyout. But right. let me put a plug in for that, right? Of so course. So, ccsalespro.com slash buyout. Mm-hmm. Um, 91-page guide that we wrote on selling your portfolio. But it was really more than that. It was really a guide to maximizing portfolio And value. understanding how yeah. to maximize. Right. Not just, like, here's the steps, but why you should be why, taking Why these. you should do this, right. Yes. But I think one of the things that, you know, in that ebook, it's and it's funny because I had a conversation with James Huber right. before the call. Right, I before the call, right? And, you know, one of the things I told him is I said, you know, if I could go back in time, I probably would have maybe even renamed that maximizing portfolio value Mm -hmm. because the topics we really didn't cover in there is that there's a lot of ways to leverage your portfolio value Mm -hmm. in order to grow your business. So, you know, one of my favorite business topics, and you know, you've been with me long enough here to know, is like printing money. You know, to me, if you can find a way to basically arbitrage Mm -hmm. and say, I want to take 10,000 and I'm going to get back 20,000, then you can scale that. Mm -hmm. Well, you win. Of course. Game over. Right. Right? So, as long as it's legal. As long as it's legal. <laughs> yes, correct. Right? So it's really, to me, that's really what business in a way is kind of all about. You know, mm-hmm. leveraging your resources to generate more value than what you're putting out. Right. Now, for many salespeople starting in this industry, all they have is time. They don't have sure. money. Right. And that's why I talk so much about prospecting. Like, 
Got it. I mean, what are you going to do? You all right. you have is time. You go get accounts, right? But once you have that seven thousand, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollar a month, you know, portfolio where you're getting a lot of residual income in, mm-hmm. now it's time to think a little bit more strategically. And I want to provide a couple of really specific ways that you can leverage your portfolio to grow your business. Okay. Okay. Number one, you can sell your less profitable accounts to buy more profitable accounts. Mm-hmm. So everybody in this industry knows, well, they should know. Accounts that are three to five thousand a month in volume right. have a propensity to cancel significantly higher than accounts doing fifteen, twenty thousand a month. Sure. And of course the reason is obvious, it's because if you run the numbers there, that business owner's not making very much money. Right. And they're probably gonna go out of business. Mm-hmm. Or at least they have a high likelihood of it. So what I used to do is I'd get a portfolio, I'd have, you know, ten, twenty thousand a month in residual. Mm-hmm. Well, Three thousand of that was merchants that were processing under five thousand. Okay. Right. Right. So I go and I sell that three thousand for whatever I can get. Fifteen x. I'm happy. Sure. Please. That's great. Right. Yeah, just whatever. Right. So let's say fifteen x. So now I got forty five thousand dollars. Maybe I got thirty five up front and ten on the back or something. Sure. Right. But I get forty five thousand dollars. What do I do with that money? Invest it. Well, what I would the way I would invest it is I go out to a multi location pizza shop. Okay. And I tell them, in this case, today it would be, I tell them about cash discounting, right? Right. But I used to go out, tell them about Interchange Plus, whatever it was. But here was the pitch. The pitch is, I want to be your credit card processing provider. And in exchange for a five-year exclusive processing contract, I'm going to buy you the latest Micros POS system for all four of your locations. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Nice, sweet deal. I would usually, on those deals, I would end up getting one deal and I'm like, wow, I spent $17,000 and I'm making $2,600 a month in residual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would do that two or three times with my $45,000. Right. 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 I just sold $3,000 of what I would say bad residual. Right. And in turn, I was able to get $6,000 of amazing residual that was locked into five year terms. Nice. Nice. So, you know, that's one of those strategies. And I'll tell you, it, one of the biggest things this industry that drives me up a wall when I talk to individual agents. And, and even ISOs, they do not understand, and it blows my mind, they do not understand how to deploy money yes. in this industry. It's, all, it's almost as though they see the money coming in and they're like so like It's so heady. easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's too easy. It, yeah. Exactly. And they don't understand, like, do you realize that all the other industries out there, they have to invest money to get accounts. Right. Right? Like right. our industry is like we're, we're like drunk on these upfront bonuses and all this stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, we just go out and make a sale and make money. Okay, but- do you realize that if you want to make a really big sale, mm-hmm. you may have to involve an IT company right. and pay them $1,800 to fix the routers in this store? Uh-huh. Yeah, right? sure. Right. You may have to buy a new $5,000 point of sale system in exchange for a $1,000 a month residual. Yes. Hello, everybody. Do you not understand when you invest $5,000 and you get $1,000 a month in return? That's like- Hello? Uh, Two hundred percent of two hundred fifty percent return annualized. Yeah, it's annualized. Ridiculous. Right. You know, you make the investment one time. So it's like, so my my thought here is, you know, leveraging the portfolio, selling bad accounts to buy good accounts. That's one. Mm-hmm. Number two is le- doing the same thing but with a residual loan. Okay. So okay. I'll do a little name drop here, and maybe we get them on. I actually have them on here to interview. But um, Super G Funding. Right. I remember them. Sure. Really good company mm-hmm. there. Um, now, their rates for a residual loan are really, really high interest rate. I'm not going to lie to you. But um, my thought with this, and I use them several times, um, had a really good experience with them. What they'll do is, if I have my residual, and I did this several times, where I looked at my portfolio and said, you know, I want to get my business to the next level, mm-hmm. but I've got some really good accounts. I actually don't want to sell these. I think these are going to be around for five or six years or 10 right. years or whatever, I don't want to sell these accounts. So what I would do is I go to Super G and I would say, hey, I need to borrow 30, 40, $50,000, uh-huh. right? They then take a percentage of my residual for six, eight, nine months right. to pay the loan back plus their factor rate. It's basically sure. like a cash advance, yeah, you know, right? Exactly. And I would just leverage it that way. Then at the end of the time, I still have those accounts. I still have my residual. You're still getting the residual. It's right? all yours. Yes. And then right. now I've got, I'm able to to get that you know money in. Um, and then what I would do is I would use that money to either A, buy more accounts, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's shocking <clears throat> when you actually know how to deploy money to 
make more money. Right. It's shocking how quickly you can take that money you just borrowed and replace the money they're holding out on mm-hmm. to pay the loan With back. More business. Yeah. And yes. then at the end, it's like, oh, look at that. It's I, a wash. At the, well, it's not or a wash. Yeah. At the end, I replaced the 4000 a month they were holding. And then at the end, I get my 4000 a month back because uh-huh. the, the loan's paid off. Nice little raise. Yeah. So there's things like that you can do to grow your business. The other thing I would do, though, is I would deploy that money against people. Mm, you know hiring people you work with Angela Angela's been with me since way way back right um the you know my first buyout is how I was able to hire Angela Mm -hmm. you know and you know deploying people to make you more productive to get more done and things like that and the last one is marketing yes marketing um just the other day I had an agent who was and this is interesting for all of you ISO execs listening in so I had an agent and he was choosing a large, very, very well-established uh, ISO that he was going to sell for. Okay? okay. And I had even made an introduction and recommended and things. And he goes to this ISO and, and he comes back to me like maybe a month later and says, hey, what's the deal? This ISO has no marketing materials. He went with a tiny little local ISO, uh, worse residual split, terrible agent agreements. Oof, oof. You know why? Because they provided him with marketing materials. And training, local training, like a person, uh-huh. you know, and it's like, you know, and I ha- was like, uh, okay, I like, I kind of get it. Like, but yeah, you, sure. Like, I can get it. Y- yeah. you, you got nothing. Like if you want people to sell, well, what you have to do is you have to provide them with stuff. You have to invest in their sales process. Right. And if right. you're an individual agent, you have to make marketing materials. It is, it is shockingly easy today to go to Upwork.com mm-hmm. and hire a graphic designer. Right. It is shockingly easy to go to Upwork.com and hire a copywriter. I've, I've done that. I mean, it's, right? ama- it's amazing, especially yeah. the design stuff. I remember oh, back yeah. in the old days, I'd have to you know take me forever to find a designer. Right. And then they'd have to put me in the queue. And right. I've and done some Three months these. later, you get something. Yeah, yeah, I've done this where I have like three days later, I have the new logo. Right. We had one just, uh, what was it, uh, f- maybe five days ago. Uh, in our pro club community on Facebook, somebody said, you know, we're talking about competing with Square. Right. And I said, well, would anybody like to have a marketing piece on how to compete with Square? Everybody's like, oh my goodness, everybody would love that because their ISO doesn't provide anything to them. Of course. So I reached out to a designer on Upwork. We got a first draft yesterday. Tomorrow, just he just messaged me right before he started recording this. End of day tomorrow, we get the finals of all the ones that I wanted. Right. Like it's a week. Yeah. And it cost me like, what is it going to cost me? A few hundred. Not, I think it's 120 bucks I'm going to spend on this. Wow. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, you know I had I, mean? a, I had a logo I was doing for a client, you know, doing yeah. some marketing materials. You know, I it's like, come on, just, I don't want to wait for his right. graphic. Right. I just want to get it done. And I think it cost me 300 bucks. Do you know how much it cost me to do logos oh, five or 10 years ago? Three or 4,000. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the name of the game here is if you have that portfolio, start to think about how you can leverage it. It's not, you know, your residual isn't just to buy your car and your vacation and pay your bills. Right. Your residual can also be reinvested in your business your in order to see a lot more growth. Yeah. Good stuff, James. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.